So the first question is, in daily life filled with Maya, I may not leave my work life or, or married life. How do we get out of the ego Maya? Please help. Bondage doesn't exist <clears throat> in worldly life <clears throat> or in married life. Bondage exists within us as ego. Ego is the problem. It is ego that is attached to this worldly life, but is attached to this married life, but is has so many desires, so many, but is constantly going outwards in search of happiness in things other than ourselves. So Bhagavan made it very clear that external world is not a problem. But then why did Bhagavan put so much emphasis on the fact that this world is unreal, but it's just a dream? Because the problem lies in are taking it to be real and therefore thinking it to be a source of happiness. <clears throat> so that is why Bhagavan emphasized there's no happiness at all to be gained from any object of the world. And the, this, this world is just unreal. So we need to understand that and be willing to turn within. But the obstacle, people often say, oh, my circumstances are such, I don't have time for for self-inquiry, I don't have time to turn my attention within. That is not the obstacle. The obstacle is our lack of willingness to turn within. It, as Bhagavan said, bhakti is the mother of jnana. It's all a matter of love. If you truly have love for it, you will turn within whatever else the body, speech, and mind may be doing. If, For example, supposing um, a very dear friend or relative of yours is critically ill in hospital, and the doctors are not able to say whether they're going to survive or not. Would you not be constantly thinking of your friend? You may have to go to your office or your place of work and attend to the work, but that thought of your friend will be constantly in the back of your mind because of your love for them. Likewise, if we have so much love for us, if we have so much love to know ourselves, but we have for our friends and relatives, our mind will be going within whatever may be the external circumstances. And that's why Bhagavan sometimes said, if you cannot attend to yourself in the midst of, if you cannot hold on to self-attentiveness in the midst of a battlefield, you won't be able to hold on to self-attentiveness even if you're sitting in a cave in the Himalayas because it's not the external circumstances that prevent us turning within it's our own liking to go outward. So even if you're you're sitting in the cave, you'll still be thinking about um, your worldly concerns. Where's your next meal going to come from? How you're going to keep yourself warm enough? This, there'll be something your mind will be thinking about. So but we shouldn't think that obstacles exist outside. That is why Bhagavan was not opposed to external renunciation, but he considered external renunciation unnecessary. He said, just like marriage comes according to prarabdha, the external renunciation may come according to prarabdha. External renunciation means formal sannyasa. It may come according to prarabdha. But whether you are, whether you're married with 10 children and having to work um, 18 hours a day, or whether you're a sannyasi with no worldly cares or responsibilities, if you have love to turn within, you can turn within. If you don't have love to turn within, whatever the external circumstances may be, it's not going to change that. So it's all the whole, the, 
problem lies within us. So Bhagavan, does that mean Bhagavan wasn't in favor of renunciation? No, Bhagavan emphasized we need to renounce everything, but not renounce externally. Just changing the color of your cloth, shaving your head or growing a long beard or something, that doesn't make you a renunciate. The real renunciation is turning our attention within. As he said in verse 26 of Uludhunaptu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. That means all phenomena, all objects, they appear only in the view of ego. So they don't exist without ego. So only when ego comes into existence do they come into existence. When the ego ceases to exist, they cease to exist. So ego is seeing itself as all these phenomena. So ego itself is everything. Then he concludes that verse by saying, therefore, investigating what it is, is giving up everything. Investigating what it is means investigating what this ego is. How is that giving up everything? Because, as he said in the previous verse, if you investigate this ego, it will take flight. It will run away. It will subside and disappear because it is not real. We seem to be ego only so long as we're looking at other things. When we turn our attention back within to see who am I, there's no such thing as ego to be found. So, Ego will run away if we investigate it. So if we investigate what this ego is, ego will subside. And without ego, nothing else can exist. So everything else will subside along with it. So we need to be willing to renounce not only ourselves, but everything else. Total renunciation is, is Bhagavan's path. We are not so, yet ready for that. That is so, why... We, we need to persevere in this uh, practice. Slowly, slowly, we need to wean our mind off its vishaya vasanas, its tasting going outwards, and cultivate the love to go within. This is the practice of self-investigation, Atmavichara. So, Michael, uh, myself, I asked that question. Yes. So, um, so, yeah, the problem is, let's say in this one hour, when we are actually mindful, when you are explaining in detail, yeah. right? That yes. time, mind is like a like a plain water, which is yes. like which of less ripples. Yes. That time, it is more clear to understand. Okay, ego is different, and you yes. know, uh, yeah. self inquiry and all. It it, it is fine. But yeah. once we go, uh, you know, uh, go to the outer world. Let's say I go to office in India in Bangalore. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That time, when I involve in in the work, or let's say. I know these things and suddenly I'll carry away with that work and I'll start, uh, my ego will come and I say, I'm a manager, as yeah. a boss. Yeah. So whatever we spoke now, this is more clearer than when we, when I go inside to the daily activities, this where is I involve more with the daily activities, I'm lost with that. That is, is the real challenge. This is the problem we all face. But the only way to overcome this is by patient and, and, and persistent uh, practice. The more we practice this self-attentiveness, the more we'll be cultivating the sattvasana, the inclination to go within, the love to go within, and weakening the vishaya vasanas. So we'll be less and less affected by the world. But the problem you're facing is a problem any genuine spiritual aspirant will face the same problem. When we think about Bhagavan's teachings, yes, then we remember these things, we become all enthusiastic. But then we seem to get sucked back into the world, all the cares and responsibilities. But we need to remember 
The problem is not the world. Why does the world delude us? Because we have so much liking to go out to attend to these things. According to Bhagavan, if it is your destiny to be a manager and to manage an office and to thereby earn a living for your family, you will do so, whether you attend to it or not. So it seems to us, oh, I've got this work, I've got this responsibility, I have to attend to it. That is not actually the case. The more you withdraw your mind back within, the more you will begin to recognize from your own experience all these external activities of mind, speech, and body. All the, That's not saying all activities, but all the necessary activities, all the activities that are necessary for your prarabdha to unfold, you, your mind, speech, and body will be made to do this. Them. This is what Bhagavan says in the first sentence of the note he wrote for his mother. Avarava prarabdha prakaram adhakanavan angangirudu artuvipan. That means according to the prarabdha, the destiny of each one, he who is for that, meaning God or Guru, being there, there, that means being in each place, implying being in the heart of each person will make them act. Literally, will make them dance. So those actions that our mind, speech, and body need to do for the prarabdha to unfold, they will be made to do. Any other activities we do, we're just doing under the sway of our bhasanas. That's not going to make any difference whatsoever. As he says in the next sentence, what is not to happen will not happen however much effort you make. What is to happen, will not stop, however much obstruction you try to make. This is certain. Therefore, being silent is good. Being silent doesn't mean not doing any activities. Let the body, speech, and mind do the activity. We need to withdraw back within. Let the body, speech, and mind do those activities, but they're made to do by God. Our duty is to turn within. So you could be a better manager, a better husband, a better father, a better child to your parents if you were turning within more and more because you will be interfering less and less and you, your body, speech, and mind will do whatever they're uh, destined to do. They'll be made to do that and you will be sinking within. The, this seems to us very, how is this possible? Because we've tried so much. But if we persevere in the practice, we will be, this will become clearer and clearer and clearer. Whatever actions are being done by us, actually they're not being done by us. It's be only because of our identification. I am this body. I am this mind. I am have this responsibility. This is my family. This is my work. This is my responsibility. But we think we have all these things. So by the more we turn within, the more we are separating ourselves from this false identity. And therefore, let this, let this person whom we seem to be, let it do whatever it's destined to do. Our responsibility is to turn within. But just because you've heard this from me once, doesn't mean it's going to be easy. I've, I've heard this I heard, I thousand heard this times. I, I heard this from Jiddu Krishnamurti. I heard this from any, everyone. But yeah, when we go it, to the it, real world is the But practice challenge. is all important. Practice is all important. That's what Bhagavan, that's why Bhagavan always emphasized the need for practice. practice. It's the only yeah. way. Because only by that, 
in order to practice, we need love. And in order to cultivate the love, we need to practice. So we, the very fact that we're here talking about this subject means we, at least by his grace, we've got a little bit of love for this. So we've got to build on this love and we can build on it only by persistent practice. There's no other way. That is, this is why Bhagavan insisted on the need for practice. Thank you so much. Earlier, Palvinda asked, is it not necessary? Are our efforts not necessary? Yes, our efforts are absolutely necessary. As Bhagavan said, it's only after many lives of clinging like a monkey, but eventually we'll gain the maturity to be able to surrender ourselves completely like a kitten. So our effort is absolutely necessary. Grace is doing everything, but our cooperation is necessary. Thank you. Thank you so much, right. uh, uh, Michael. Palvinda, do you want to ask your question now? Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm a very advanced pr practitioner. It was very gracious, fortunate of mine that I came across Bhagavan Ramana Maharishi. So I then spent um, a lot of time reading talks with Ramana Maharishi. So I had a I had a good grounding. But anyway, I am now at the moment reading the book uh, Vichar Sangram. And um, Bhagavan has has drawn an, an amazing diagram. And so they say that a, a picture paints a thousand words. So I'm going to, I've brought the page with me today and I'm going to show it to everybody here. So this is from the book of Vichar Sangaram, right? So if you see here, that is the Atama. But where I'm confused is I understand the diagram number five is the ego, right? The five is the num point, number, point number five is the ego. But number two is the door to the inner chamber, right? But I want to understand that number three right number three. so so at the moment i'm in the jagratavasta right so i understand number five is where i am there i am the ego right but number three right so if i go to the book number three the doorstep towards the atma to, towards the self right the doorstep is the mahatattva right but what i'm confused is number two is the sleep right it says that the door to the inner self is sleep but i i'm confused i can't understand that to go into the inner chamber right so the inner chamber is one minute number seven right the inner chamber deep sleep in which the causal body is manifest so those of you who haven't got this book in front of you it's going to be very hard for me to explain, right? But, but I, Bhagavan... I think I, I, I can explain this without going into too much detail. Okay, this is my question. I, yes. I apologize for interrupting. No. This is my question. Yes. Why should number two, the sleep, be the door to the inner, right? And right. then my second question is, if you are in the awakened state, the state of Brahm, right? Yes. Then how are you to engage in the world? I can't understand. Are we to remain in constant sleep to obtain God? What I want to ask is, I've read talks with Ramana Maharishi, and the central teaching is recognize who you are. The people used to come and ask this question, 
And he used to say, who is the person who's asking the question? He said, recognize yourself. I can't understand. Number two is the door. And, and I'm going to let you speak now. Um, right. right. I, so, so should I sleep in the, should I like, okay, I'll go to sleep at 10 o'clock at night and wake up in the morning. Should I sleep con continuously, just keep sleeping and sleeping, right? I can't understand okay. number two, the door. And I also can't understand number three, the entrance to, to the inner chamber within our body. I also am very confused about Buddhism because the Buddha said non-self, right? So, so could you just please explain? Kindly, right. please, a little okay. explanation. Okay, very, very briefly, because the last thing you asked was about the uh, Buddha and the uh, anatta. In, in, in Pali, it's anatta, in Sanskrit, anatma. Anatma does not mean no self. What the Buddha said in Pali, sabbe uh, dhamma anatta. In Sanskrit, that would be sarva dharma anatma. In that context, dharma means phenomena. So what he said is, all phenomena are not oneself. This is pure Vedanta. This is exactly what we are taught in Vedanta. What we actually are is not this body, not this mind, not this uh, causal body. These are all phenomena. So what we... So the same teaching is there in Vedanta, but none of the none of these objects are ourselves. That's all it means. But this is interpreted by some Buddhists to mean that there's no Atma at all. That is that is a, a that is a, on the simple grounds of logic that is absurd because Atma means oneself. Everything is itself. So when Buddha said all objects are, are anatta, he meant they are not our self. That is, now we mistake ourselves to be this body. So he is saying all these objects, all these phenomena are not our self. He's not saying that they're not themselves. Of course, the, the, the body is itself, the microphone is itself, the PC is itself, everything is itself. But these objects that we now mistake to be ourselves, these five sheaths, these panchakosa, are not are, are not what we actually are. That's all the Buddha meant. And that is in perfectly accord with Bhagavan's teaching. So uh, though it's some people interpret it, the Buddha said that there's no self, that is not the Vedantic understanding of what Buddha said. The Vedantic understanding of what Buddha said is simply he was saying the same as Vedanta, but these Objects, these phenomena are not ourselves. So that that's that question. Regarding this uh, passage of Vichara Sangraham, to put this in the context of Bhagavan teachings, we need to understand something. That is, there's a work, I don't know if you've read it, called Nana, Who Am I? That is the pure teachings of Bhagavan, because the person who asked those questions was a person called uh, Shiva Prakasham Pillai. The very first question he asked Bhagavan was, Swami, who am I? So he was perfect, without even knowing that Bhagavan had, was incarnated on this world to teach the path of self-investigation, who am I? He asked that question. So the disciple and the guru were, in, were perfectly attuned. So the questions he asked elicited very useful answers from Bhagavan. So much so 
that is, he asked those questions about 1901, 1902. But he kept he kept a note of all the answers Bhagavan had given. And after more than 20 years, he published a biography, a Tamil, a Tamil poem he had written on Bhagavan, uh, giving a brief outline of Bhagavan's biography. And in that biography, he referred to these questions and he summarized in a few lines of that biography. He summarized the core teachings he had received from Bhagavan. And in that biography, as an appendix, he included some of the questions and answers. Bhagavan later rewrote those questions and answers as an essay because it is such a, a perfect summary of his core teachings. If we contrast that, so Nana is the pure teachings of, uh, of, um, of Bhagavan, whereas Bichara Sangram is not the pure teachings of Bhagavan because though it was given at the same time, the person to whom this Vichara Sangram was given was a uh, was a person called um, Gambiram Seishaya. He was a somewhat older person. He had read a lot of books at, at that time, just at the turn of the twenty of the twentieth century. That was only a few years after um, um, the books of uh, Vivekananda. Raja Yoga, Karma Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, Jnana Yoga. There were some books of Vivekananda which were published in the 1890s in English. He had read these books and he had also read other books in, uh, in Tamil about um, Vedanta and about various yoga and so on. So he had read a lot, but he was in, he, many things that he had read he didn't understand. So he brought these books to Bhagavan. The, the Vivekananda's books and some other books, and he asked Bhagavan to explain what was some passages which he didn't understand. So Bhagavan wrote in simple Tamil summaries of what Vivekananda had said, or summaries of what was said in Yoga Vashistha or various different yoga texts. So about 10% of Vichara Sangraham is Bhagavan's pure teachings. About 90% is a mixture of so many other ideas. Bhagavan, if you come to Bhagavan and if you come with a, um, a simple uh, text and you ask Bhagavan to explain it, whether Bhagavan agrees with it or not, he will explain it to you. So there were many ideas in Vivekananda's books and in these other books but are not actually Bhagavan's teaching. But because Gambiram Seisha asked Bhagavan to explain them. Bhagavan explained them. Many years later, all these notes of Gambiram Seisha were given by a relative. Gambiram Seisha passed away. His, the notes he had kept at that time were presented to the ashram. And a devotee called uh, Swami Nathanananda, he tried to edit them. And he got a little bit of help from Bhagavan. Um, so he edited something, and then some other devotees also wanted to add their own thing. So there are two versions of Vichara Sangram. One is question and answers, the other is the essay version. The essay version was the later version. Both were edited by Nathanananda, but in the essay version, um, there were portions which, after consulting with Bhagavan, Nathanananda decided to omit. But those were added later on. Some of the later sections, for, for example, um, there's uh there's a one of the sections is um section six is Brahma Vidya, 
then comes Kadavul Puja, worship of God. Then chapter eight, section eight is Mukti. Then after Mukti, guess what comes? Yoga Shtanga and then Jnana Shtanga. These were portions which Natanananda had omitted, which some other devotees added later. So this Vichara Sangraham is not a reliable text. There are some very, very useful ideas in it, but we need to read it with discrimination. If we consider this, uh, this diagram and what is said about it, one term that you talked about, Mahatattva, this is not a Vedantic idea. This is an idea from Sankhya. According to Sankhya, there are two fundamental tattvas. There's Purusha and Prakriti. Purusha is just what they call pure awareness. And what they mean by pure awareness is not what is meant by pure awareness in Vedanta. Because in Vedanta, pure awareness means awareness that is not aware of anything other than itself. Whereas in Sankhya, pure awareness means it's mere awareness. It's nothing but awareness. So Purusha is only awareness. And Prakriti is all phenomena. So Prakriti normally remains abhyakta, that is unmanifest. Only when Purusha and Prakriti join together, then Purusha becomes manifest. And uh, so Purusha is the first tattva. That, that, that is apart from, uh, sorry, Purusha and Prakriti, they're the first two tattvas because it's a dualistic system. From from Prakriti, all the other tattvas proceed after the two Purusha and Prakriti come in contact. So the first um, principle, to, uh, the first tattva to emerge from Prakriti is Mahatattva. Mahatattva means buddhi, intellect. And from that comes ego. And from that comes the tanmatras, the subtle five senses. Sorry, the subtle, subtle five uh, elements. The subtle pancha Buddha. What you call pancha tattva is what is called pancha Buddha, the five elements. So there's a subtle form called the tanmatras. And then from that, the gross form comes. And they've got, I can't remember how many tattvas, some 32 tattvas or something. But the first tattva to emerge is Mahatattva. Then only comes Ahankara. That is quite contrary to Bhagavan's teachings. According to Bhagavan, as he says, for example, in verse 26 of Uludnapdu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. So, according to Bhagavan, all of Purush, all of uh, Prakriti exists only in the view of ego. We, and ego is not ego is not real because ego appears and disappears. So the, the underlying reality of ego, the pure awareness I am, that alone is what is real. Ego is unreal, and the world and all the phenomena, the kriti that it sees, are also unreal. So Bhagavan's philosophy is quite, quite different to Sankhya. Um, so, so yoga is based mainly on Sankhya. So if you read books on yoga, that is Patanjali's yoga, you'll find a lot of uh, Sankhya ideas will be there. Because Sankhya and yoga, they're considered as a pair of philosophies. Uh, and they, 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 they share common philosophy, common metaphysics, and common goal. Um, so but yoga is a means to realize the aim of Sankhya. But that is not Bhagavan's path. So the very fact that Mahatattva is mentioned here, coming before the ego, means we can understand this is not Bhagavan's pure teachings. 
in the different Vedantic texts, and even in Sankhya texts and so many other, there are so many different levels of explanation are given to suit people at different levels of spiritual maturity. So in yoga, this type of explanation will be given. Bhagavan's explanation is far, far simpler than this. Here it says that the Karna Sarira remains in sleep. That is also said in a lot of Vedantic texts, but that is not Bhagavan's teaching. According to Bhagavan, uh, everything comes into existence only when ego comes into existence. Since ego dissolves in sleep, nothing else exists in sleep. There's no Karana Sarira, nothing. The reason why it is said Karana Sarira exists in sleep is Karana Sarira consists of Vabhasanas. So when people ask, oh, if ego doesn't exist in sleep, how does it come out again in waking? Then to satisfy such people, it is said, oh, because the, everything remains in seed form in sleep, in the form of Karana Sarira, and those vasanas make ego rise in waking and dream. That is not according to Bhagavan's teaching, because according to Bhagavan's teaching, whose vasanas are they? They're only ego's vasanas. So how can ego, how come a vasanas exist in the absence of ego? So if vasanas are there in seed form and sleep, then ego must also be there in seed form. It gets unnecessarily complicated. Bhagavan simplified things a lot. Only when ego comes into existence do all other things come into existence. The root problem is ego. So there are aim. What is ego? Ego is the false awareness. I am Palvinda. I am Michael. I am such and such a person. I am this body. That is ego. What is real in ego is only the awareness I am. That is what is real. That is such it. The, the, the Palvinda or Michael or whatever, these are all Nama Rupa. They're all, they're all superimposed and conflated with that I am. So in the view of ego, I am Palvinda, I am Michael. That is a false awareness. So in order to remove the false awareness, we need correct awareness. The false awareness is Agnana, the correct awareness is Jnana. In other words, we need to know ourselves as we actually are. That is why Bhagavan taught all we need to do is to turn our attention away from all other things back towards ourselves to see what we actually are. If we see what we actually are, ego will thereby be destroyed and we will remain as we actually are. Bhagavan's path is so simple. It's far simpler than yoga or sankhya or even many versions of uh, Advaita. Bhagavan's teachings are very simple and very practical. But though they are simple, they are very, very deep. Very, very subtle. So we need to understand them. Texts like this that is, these sort of explanations will not help us to understand Bhagavan. So you can, that is, if you know about the other philosophies, you can, you, we can understand what they're saying there, but it's not so useful for us. It's actually, for most people, this type of, what is depicted in this diagram would be confusing because this is not Bhagavan's pure teachings. It's far more complicated than Bhagavan's pure teachings. According to Bhagavan, the five sheaves, what is called the body, is all the five. He says in verse five of Uludanapati, he says, Udal Panchakosuru, the body is a form of five sheaves. Therefore, all five are included in the term body. So 
and we, we can understand this from our own experience. Whenever we experience ourselves as I am this body, we don't experience just the physical body. It's always a living physical body. So that is the anamaya kosha, the physical body, the pranamaya kosha. We also don't experience ourselves as a sleeping body. It's always a, a body that's awake. So in the waking body, there's mind, intellect, and will. That is the uh, manamaya kosha, uh, vijnanamaya kosha, and anandamaya kosha. So whenever we experience this body as I, we experience all five sheaths. In sleep, also we experience all five sheaths. In some texts, it is said, in sleep, you, it's implied here, in sleep, it's the subtle body. But Bhagavan said, no, the body you experience as yourself in sleep is just as gross as this body. When you're sleep, asleep, your body seems to be the physical body. You don't think, oh, this is a subtle body. So it's just as gross as this body. And when you're asleep, there's no body at all. All we are aware of in sleep is our own existence, I am. So that, now we come to your other question about uh, Jagrat Shashupti, wakeful sleep. Wakeful sleep should not be confused with sleep. What wakeful sleep means is, Jagrat means alert, attentive, awake. That means we... When we are practicing self-investigation, we are trying to hold on to our fundamental awareness, I am. So long as we're attending to ourselves, we don't fall asleep. Sometimes when we're trying to practice, we may fall asleep. That is because we've lost hold on our self-attentiveness. There are two obstacles when we're trying to hold on to self-attentiveness. One is sleep. The other is thought. If we, if we get carried away by thoughts, we've lost hold of our self-attentiveness. If we slip into sleep, we've lost hold of our self-attentiveness. But so long as we hold on to self-attentiveness, we won't fall into sleep and we won't, um, we, we won't fall into thought. We will remain balanced between the two. This is the true meaning of samadhi. The deeper meaning of samadhi is that state of samadhi, the state where the mind is in a state of equilibrium, neither falling asleep nor getting carried away by thoughts. But the key to holding on to that is to hold on to self-attentiveness, to be self-attentive, to hold on, ne never to let go of that fundamental awareness I am. So if we go, if we hold on to that and we'll sink deep within ourselves, we thereby go beyond thought and beyond the ordinary sleep. That is the state of wakeful sleep. It's, it's sleep because we're not aware of anything else. It's wakefulness because we're fully aware of ourselves. So that Jagrat Shushupti is what is called the fourth state. It's not actually the fourth state, as Bhagavan said. That is the only state, but the only real state. The other three states are unreal. So what is called the fourth is actually the only state. And that is the state of Anyani. That is our real nature. But in order to experience that, all we need to do is to hold on to self-attentiveness. So what Jagrat Shushupti means, wakeful sleep, what it means is being so vigilantly self-attentive but we cease to be aware of anything else, so it's like sleep. But we never cease to be aware of ourselves, so it's like waking. That is the meaning of Jagrat Shashupti. So this passage you ask about in, in Vichara Sangraham, you, you can happily discard that. 
I could explain to you what is Mahatattva and all these things, but it's unnecessary because that's not Bhagavan's teachings. Bhagavan's teachings are very, very simple. He's Bhagavan made it as simple as possible. The whole problem is ego, the false awareness, I am this body. If we investigate ourselves and know what we actually are, ego is thereby eradicated, everything else is eradicated. And then there was one other question you asked about how Vinyani operates in the world. Vinyani does not operate in the world. We see the body and we say this body is Vinyani. For example, we see um, Bhagavan. He seems to us to be a person like us, to have a body, to have a story. He was born in, Madur in Tiruchuri, came to Madurai, and then as a 16-year-old uh, boy, he had a death experience. He attained self-realization. He came to Tiruvannamalai. Um, for some years, he wasn't talking much. Then he began talking, and the ashram grew up around him. So many devotees came. This is the story of that person, Ramana Maharshi. He wrote beautiful poems with very deep meaning. He answered people's questions and everything. But when he was asked, he said, the jnani is like the sleeper in the cart. If a person is, you know, well, I, I assume you've been to India, you'll have seen the bullock carts. They were very common in those days. So if someone is sleeping in the bullock cart, he doesn't know whether the, whether the cart is moving or whether the bullocks are standing still or whether the bullocks have been un, uh, unyoked. Likewise, the jnani who is asleep in the body Bhagavan said that metaphorically. Nani, who is asleep in the body, is not aware of the activity of the body or the nishta, the samadhi, but the, the Nani may seem to go into, or the sleep. He's not aware of any of these. He's aware only of himself. So Bhagavan used to say, because you see yourself as a person, as a body, you take, mistake me to be a body, but that is not what I actually am. So what is Bhagavan? Bhagavan is that light of awareness that is always shining in our heart as I am. That is the real form of Bhagavan. That is his real Jyoti Swarupa. His Jyoti Swarupa doesn't mean some external light. It is the light of pure awareness. It, it, it's called light as it, metaphorically. So that is the real um, that is the so but the state of vinyani vinyani is not aware of body or world or anything vinyani is aware only i am but as bhagavan said jnana jnani jnana alone is vinyani jnana means pure awareness only pure awareness can know pure awareness so what knows pure awareness vinyani is only pure awareness thank you so much michael Going back to my uh, very um, rare and something that I'll never forget in my life is when I first ever, after a long time, waking up three o'clock, two o'clock, hot yoga mm. and doing all sorts of penances, I finally went into Samadhi. So if I recall a moment where Bhagwan Ramana Maharishi said to Ganapati Muni, he said that I feel like the whole world, the universe is within me, right? Yeah. And like when I went into Samadhi and I was cross-legged in the Sikh temple, it's very strange that it happened mm. in the Sikh temple. The uh, person was doing um, the kirtan, the singing of the devotional yeah. music. And he did it with such love. And it comes back to what you've mentioned today about love. Mm. This is a very central part 
of any 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 teaching is the love for God, right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So I can see from what you've been postulating that you are from the Gyan Marg, uh, yes. what we in Sikhism called Gyan. In yes. Hinduism, it's called Janan. Yeah, yeah, yes. It's, yes, it's yes. just a little, just a simple mm -hmm. um, change of pronunciation. Just a slight pronunciation. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I myself am of the Bhagati uh, mark. Yes. According right. to Bhagavan, Bhakti and Jnana are one. All right. The, the advanced stage of the path of Bhakti is the path of Jnana. Yeah. But and my deeper, question, my deeper my, Bhakti is Jnana. Yeah, okay, thank you so much. Michael, my question is that when I went into Samadhi and I went into such Chitta Ananda, mm. right, I was in pure bliss. I didn't have a the body felt very light. Yes. It felt like a beautiful temple. Yes. And within me, I could see a world. But I'm going back to what you mentioned about uh, Patanjali and the yeah. Yoga Sutra. Yes. Right. So I want to ask because Bhagavan talks about um, here is the heart of the body. Right. So when I went into Samadhi, I could see a whole world within me. Right. But I want to ask about how I was to because the Samadhi faded after 20 after 20 minutes, it faded. Yeah. Yes. Just like imagine you you've had yes. two points two points of of a lager, and they they fade away. Yes, right. Or imagine somebody a young girl has been studying for her GCSEs, yeah, and she finally goes to her school and gets her results, and she opens the paper and she's got A grades, and yes. she experiences such bliss. But the yeah. bliss fades away. Yes, yes. Right. So I was there within myself in the Sikh temple in a constant battle to keep this state of mind going. Yes. But I felt the ego taking yes. a hold of me and he brought me back out into the world. Okay. Right? Okay. But my question is, my question is that within me, can you can you please give some sort of explanation about uh, very the simple. internal about about where where the seat is within the body, the seat of Arunachala. It is it is not in the body. Though Bhagavan talked about the for people who who come from people like Ganapati Muni who are much interested in yoga, when Bhagavan talks about the heart, they asked where in the heart body is the heart. Bhagavan said, heart is not just in the body. Heart is yourself. Heart is the the word heart means your own, the center of everything, and everything is contained in that center. So heart is contained in everything and contains everything. But when they continued insisting, but is it the Anahata Chakra? Then Bhagavan said, no, it is not the Anahata Chakra. Then he said, it's here, two digits of right. That is only, that is the seat of ego, not the seat of ourself. Because ego, where ego is centered in the body, is only here. That is, that is the, the, the center from which the awareness eye spreads throughout the body. So um, that's a very mundane thing. As Bhagavan said, if, if a schoolboy says, I will go and uh, I will run and fetch the post, he doesn't point at his legs and say, I will run. 
And if he says, I can do the sum correctly, he doesn't point at his head and say, I can do the sum. We always, when we refer to ourselves, we naturally point two digits to right from the center of the chest. And if you, for example, if you're walking down the street and suddenly a car comes behind you and honks the horn very loudly, you may get a shock. If you observe the shock, you'll feel it here on the right. So it's a very mundane, body-related thing. It has nothing, it has no practical significance in Bhagavan's teachings. It was only for those who were not going deep into Bhagavan's teachings, who asked questions about the body and so on, that Bhagavan gave this answer to satisfy them. It is true at a certain level, but it's not a very deep truth. That is not what Bhagavan meant by the heart. What he meant by the heart is you yourself for the heart. Your heart is your means your real nature, what you actually are. Um, regarding samadhi, Bhagavan said samadhi is not real. All the ordinary samadhi that people, any samadhi that comes and goes is not real. The only real samadhi is Sahaja Samadhi, the Samadhi that we are always in. But though we are always in Sahaja Samadhi, so long as we rise as ego, we are not aware of our, of our natural state. So Sahaja Samadhi simply means our natural state of pure being. So we are always in that state, but we seem to be out of it. So the Samadhis we experience in the course of spiritual practice, all sorts of experiences come, and they can be called Samadhi of various different types. There are so many different types of Samadhi are described. But they are all, as you said, it's a state of mind. A state of mind is unreal because the mind itself is unreal. So let us, we are not looking for any experience that comes and goes. When, we, when we're practicing self-investigation, we're not looking for some experience because experiences come and go. We are looking for our own being, what we actually are. That is something that never comes and never goes. Whether, you're, whether you feel you're in samadhi or you feel you're in sleep or you feel you're in waking or dream, whatever state you're in, you are always aware I am. That alone is what is real. That is what we seek to know and to investigate. Michael, thank you so much. Right. There's one other thing. Okay, um, but let I, this be the last because other people may be waiting with other yeah, questions. Yeah, I'm happy to um, um, omit myself if somebody else wishes to take over. Well, if you've got one more question, ask your question and then, then we'll go yeah, on. Yeah, it's a, it's a very strange what happened to me on one day. I used to work night shift in a factory. Yes. And I uh, struggled to rest during the day. Then 11 o'clock, I left my house and I walked two miles to the factory and I worked throughout the whole night in the factory. I was blessed enough to be uh, given my own room. So this factory was in a, within one allocation, within one this one room. And I had Girthen, I seek Girthen, throughout the whole night I was listening and when it came to 12 o'clock midday and I'd finished my shift, I had to do various paperwork, uh, which was the accountancy of the work that I did. Um, once I, I was sat on the chair and I went into, again, in my mind, it's samadhi. Yes. But, but in this instance, I was in pure, pure light 
I was in pure light is, is all I can say. Yes. I had absolute no consciousness of where I was, whether I'm the body. I was in pure consciousness and it lasted for about 10 seconds. Mm. And then I came back. Right. So I, I just wish to share this and, and, and I'll, you know, this and, the the instance I shared yeah, to you, yes, yes. I've I've actually had very very. Uh, I understand Sehej as well, mm. Sehej Yoga. I understand. I've been through various experiences, but it's like in the documentary Bhagwan Ramana Maharishi, the Sage of Arunachala, which is available on YouTube. So Bhagwan says you may have uh, various clairvoyance, clairvoyance, and you may have various supernatural powers and all sorts, but it's until you're not completely seated in the self. Yeah. You know, all these things, all these experiences like samadhi and different states of mind and all these um, clairvoyance and powers and all these things, they come and they go. Whatever comes has to go and is therefore not real. As I said, what Bhagavan's teachings are all about is about knowing what is real. What is real is only our own being. So we need to know who am I. The one thing that never comes or goes is our, our own being, the pure, the pure I, I, I am, the awareness of our own being. That alone is real. That alone we should be concerned about. So let any experiences come and go. We should not be concerned about them. We should not be concerned about samadhi. We should not be concerned about siddhis or shakti or clairvoyance or any of these wonderful powers. They're all just uh, um, mere appearances. They're not real. What is real has to be permanent. Something that appears and disappears is not real and is not worth going after. So Bhagavan's teachings are very, very simple. All we need to do is to, whatever experience may come, to whom does this experience come? To me, who am I? We need to turn our attention, go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper within. That is the path we have to follow. Yeah. So let's what not you be have, concerned about any yeah. of these other things. What you have said, and, and this is my final thought that I wish to share, yeah. because the valuable time I wish to give to other people yes. who are listening attentively. But what you have said is, has reminds me of uh, Punja Papaji, mm. right? And he used to have the uh, darshan of uh, Shri Krishna. Yes. And Bhagavan Ramana Maharishi said, that oh you're having the darshan but the darshan this disappears yes, yes. right whatever he says whatever appears but then disappears is not the permanent state yes it's not real Quite but simple. tell me but tell me michael if i am to go into the permanent state then how am i to operate in the world don't worry about that <laughs> you're Prarabdha will take care of that. Your only concern should be going into that. This life itself is a temporary appearance. It appears and disappears. Let the life, this life take care of itself. Leave it to Prarabdha. That Prarabdha has been allotted to you by God and it will take its own course. Our only concern should be to know what is real. What is real 
can only be ourselves because everything else appears and disappears. So we need to be one-pointed. Let's not worry about what will happen to... We're again taking ourselves to be a person. How will I operate in this world? means how will this person, Palvinder Singh, operate in the world? Palvinder Singh will operate perfectly well as, as, uh, as led by Prarabdha. Do not worry yourself about Palvinder Singh. You are not Palvinder Singh. You are I am alone. So hold on to I am. That's all that's necessary. You know, I wish to share. Um, uh, you know, driving, I'm a coach driver. And when I drive, it's a state of mind because your body is, your hands are on the steering wheel. Your body is in a beautiful seat, right? Mm. And um, it's like what you said, right? So we all the time, there is an internal body within us, our mind, mm. right? Yeah. So it's like Bhagavan used to say, you can go out. You don't need to go to the jungles and be a hermit. He yeah. said, you can do your work, but you need to be altruistic. You need to be selfless. You need to be, let the body do its own. So me, in my example, I'm driving the coach, but in my mind, I was doing constant mantra repetition. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Anyway, shall we let other people ask questions yeah, now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, the next question is um, from Sean. It says, uh, this work on Akshar Manamalai is my favorite. Uh, um, it is interesting to see the bhakti and gyan blending. How is it that Arunachala sees us and how are we to see him? Is it not merely being as we truly are already in our heart as I am? Thank you. How is Arunachala seeing us? As Bhagavan said in the previous verse, verse 15, he sees without eyes. And he, he is the eye to the eye. In this context, that eye to the eye means that he is the awareness that illumines the mind, enabling the mind to know other things. So how does he see without eyes? He sees us by just that he, how does it, firstly, what does he see? He sees only himself. So how does he see himself? Just by being himself. As Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Upadesh Undia, Tanai iritle tanai aridlam, tanai rendatradal. That is, uh, being oneself alone is knowing oneself, because oneself is not two. There are no two things, oneself to know another self. So we know ourselves not by an act of knowing, but just by being what we actually are. Because what we actually are is pure awareness, and pure awareness always knows itself just by being itself. So Arunachala needs no eye, needs no instrument of seeing to see, because it sees just by being. So it sees itself by being itself. And since, in its view, nothing is other than itself, it sees us as itself. So our aim is to see ourselves as Arunachala sees us, namely as 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 ourself alone, a pure being. Um, so uh, we can see him only by being him. And how can we be him? He well, he's already our real nature. So we just need to be as we actually are. Instead of rising as ego, we need to just remain as pure being. Remaining as pure being is the, alone the true seeing. 
I hope that adequately answers that question. The next question um, is from Rajat Sancheti. Uh, I had a question regarding the baby cat and baby monkey analogy. Is the transition from, from the baby monkey phase to baby cat phase only a change in the attitude of the baby holding to its mother? Or is there also a difference in the attitude of the mother towards the baby? In other words, does Bhagwan hold on to a more fully surrendered devotee more strongly than to an immature devotee whose mind is always outward going, since the former, as Sadhu Om Swami said, uh, is a critical patient in the ICU ward and not a common cold patient like the latter? It may seem to us, but when the more we surrender ourselves to Bhagavan, the more he takes care of us. That's how it may seem from our point of view. But even when we're not surrendering ourselves to him, even when we're rushing out seeking the pleasures of the world, he is still holding on to us. He never lets go of us. So he remains constant because he, what changes, Oh, doing changes. Ch to, to change from one condition to another condition is a doing. But what is our natural? He's pure being. Pure being can never change in any way. Being alone is being. So he is ever unchanging. That, that's why I said in, uh, earlier when I was talking about this verse, Kantami uh, Rumbupol, what does a magnet do to attract iron to itself? It just remains as it is. It, but just by being a magnet, it automatically attracts. So just by being pure being, our own being, Aranatya automatically attracts us. The difference we see is a difference in our perception. It may seem to us, in fact, it will seem to us, the more we yield ourselves to him, the more we're willing to yield ourselves to him, the more we will recognize how much he's ever holding on to us so these analogies of the of the, the the baby monkey and the kitten these are useful analogies but we can't take analogies too far because even when we're holding on to bhagavan he's holding he's always holding on to us but in order to recognize that he's always holding on to us in order to gain confidence that he's never letting go of us and we can therefore yield ourselves to him we need to hold tight so according to bhagavan for many people when they hear about uh, the the baby monkey and baby kitten which do you prefer oh i prefer to be a baby kitten let him do everything we think but in order to be fit to be a baby kitten, we need to have gained a considerable degree of spiritual maturity. That's, that spiritual maturity only comes by clinging firmly to him. So um, these analogies are useful, but we need to understand that it's only, as Bhagavan emphasized in that verse of Kukavachya Kukavai 696, it's only, if we attain that jnana siddhi in this very life, giving up all our attachments, if we attain it in this very life, it is because we have done all the hard work before. There's, there's, nobody can succeed in this path without doing the hard work required. And the hard work required is not actually work at all. It's just holding on to ourselves, which is not a doing, but just a being. So we need to hard work hard at just being. 
We, in other words, we need to persistently, however many times our attention comes outwards, we need to pull it back towards ourselves. So, so when can we safely give up this um, this uh, the, the monkey barber and take to the kitten barber? Never give up the monkey barber. Cling, 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 cling until you can cling no more. Then the, the, you'll be overtaken by the kitten barber. So we don't have to consciously um, become a kitten, try to be like a kitten. We just have to continue clinging. And the more we cling, the more we will recognize that he's ever holding us. He never, never lets go of us. How can he let go of us? He's our own being. He is that which is always shining in our heart as eye. So he's our own reality. He can never let go of us. It's we alone as ego who let go of him. I hope that's an adequate answer to that question, Rajat. Yeah, so the question, this is from Madhuka. I'm not sure if that's the way you say her name. So the question is, it is attention that is self-investigating, isn't it? But I feel that I, attention, am so entangled with the mind and intellect and with sheets so so when I'm self-attending, it is difficult to know if I'm attending to pure attention, I am, or to some subtle sheath like mind or will. Can you please help? Okay. Um, firstly, what is investigating is we are investigating ourselves. Attention is the means by which we investigate. So what is attention? Attention is a focusing of our awareness, a directing of our awareness to something. That is, attention is there only for ego. In sleep, we don't attend to anything because there are no, there are no two things in sleep. So there's nothing, self-attention is not necessary in sleep because all that exists is our self, nothing other than our self. But in waking and dream, when we rise as ego, we become aware of all this multiplicity. And we have this power to focus our attention, focus our awareness on one thing or one thing or one set of things in in preference to other things. So that focusing of our awareness on one thing is what is called attention. So in a sense, you can say, yes, attention is the is, is ego itself, because it's ego's awareness that is focused. But it, it's rather than thinking of it as attention investigating itself, it is we ourselves are investigating ourselves. And we are trying to focus our attention on our own being. But in other words, on that, on that fundamental awareness I am, that is our being, that's what we're trying to focus our attention on. But because we've risen as ego, we have mixed that fundamental awareness I am, mixed and conflated it with all these adjuncts. So we are, by trying to focus our attention on I am, we are trying to extricate ourselves from all these adjuncts. So when we start off, our, our, the, the depth and clarity of our self-attentiveness will be won't be so deep. It won't be so deep. It won't be so clear. But we make a start. So at first, we are attending to ourselves, but there's still a lot of mixture of adjuncts. But the deeper and deeper we go within, the more the adjuncts drop off and the pure awareness I am alone remains. So uh, don't worry if there's still some mixture of adjuncts, if you're still aware of the body or you're still aware of uh, some thoughts in the mind or anything. 
don't worry about any of these things. So long as you're not uh, trying to attend to these things, so long as you're trying to attend only to yourself, to your own being, that's all that is required. That's all we can do. But as we do that more and more and more, we go deeper and deeper within. And to the extent to which we go deep within, the adjuncts drop off. Or we can view, rather than view it in terms of going deep within, that's one way of saying it. Another way of saying it is we're trying to turn 180 degrees. The normal condition of ego is to be facing outwards, away from itself towards other things. So we're trying to turn that attention away from other things back to face ourselves alone. So we are, so to speak, we are turning 180 degrees. So the more we are trying to turn 180 degrees, the more number of degrees we are turning, the deeper within we are going. These are all just ways of explaining it. Uh, uh, that is, words cannot adequately capture this, but these are just, these are, are ways of clarifying and explaining it. So the more we turn our attention back towards ourselves, we are thereby turning it away from other things. So if we turn just 10 degrees, 20 degrees to ourselves, we're still very much aware of other things. But if we turn, at, say, 90 degrees ourself, towards ourselves, the, the awareness of other things it has received quite considerably into the background. But further and further we turn, the less and less we are aware of anything else. So all other things recede into the background, so to speak, until we are so keenly self-attentive, but we are aware of nothing other than ourselves. That is the moment that ego, that is when we turn the full 180 degrees, that's the end. Ego is captured, caught in the net of his grace, never to escape again. So, uh, that is the point at which ego is, dis is destroyed, and we recognize what we actually are. E ego is destroyed only when we recognize what we actually are. When we recognize ourselves as pure awareness, we cease to be ego and remain as pure awareness. So all we can do is to try to attend to our ourself, to our own being, as much as we can. Don't worry about, we'll see, yes, at first there still will be awareness of the body, there still will be awareness of thoughts and of things going on around, but we need to, rather than allowing our attention to be distracted by those things, we need to try to hold on to self-attentiveness. And if our attention is distracted, if we mind goes out towards something, oh, to whom have all these other things appeared? We again try to turn our attention back to ourselves. So, this is, we can only be self-attentive to the extent to which we can be self-attentive. Now, our self-attentiveness may be not be so deep, doesn't matter. Try, 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 and you'll go deeper and deeper and deeper within. We have to be... The, Bhagavan often gave the analogy of a runaway cow, of trying, tempting it back to its shed with a bunch of green grass. We have to be very, very patient. Sometimes the cow will follow us, Sometimes he'll become a bit suspicious. Oh, this fellow's trying to trick me. He wants to take me to my shed and lock me inside. No, no, I'm not going to follow him. So the cow goes away. Like that with the mind. We're trying to cajole the mind to go deeper and deeper within. But the mind keeps on uh, 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 getting scared and rushing outwards, trying to grab this or that. So we just have to be very patient. doesn't matter how much we seem to fail in this path. We need to keep on trying. Yes, inevitably, our attention will go away again and again and again. We just patiently need to try to bring it back and try to be as self-attentive as we can. That's all we need to be concerned about.
The perfect self-attention will come in due course by his grace. All we can do is to be as perfectly self-attentive as we can be. That's, we can't do more than that. And if you're traveling on a journey, you know your destination, but you can only travel from the point where you are now. It's the same in the spiritual path. We may not be very perfect at this self-attentiveness, but so long as we're trying, we're moving in the right direction. That's all that matters. That's all Bhagavan asks of us, to try our best. He will take care of everything else. Because ultimately, this is all the work of grace. Even our trying is because of his grace we are trying. But we need to try because by trying, we are to the extent to which we hold on to self-attentiveness, we are thereby yielding ourselves to his grace and uh, refraining from obstructing his grace as we normally, if we're rushing outwards, we're obstructing his grace. That's our normal condition. So we're trying to we yield ourselves to his grace by trying to hold on to self-attentiveness. I hope that's an adequate answer to that question. The next question is from Jen. Um, I feel like Bhagwan is fully with me and never leaves. I feel so fortunate to have the spiritual love. However, I feel that my heart is so hurt by things um, that have happened in my life. And I'm reacting from feeling like the black sheep in my family, from feeling hurt, from feeling neglected and always left out by my siblings from traumas growing up. How do I heal myself? Uh, how do I heal my heart? Spiritually, there is strength there, but these traumas of feeling unlovable and unwanted and neglected, ignored, never leave me. I want Bhagwan to heal my heart, but it doesn't seem to happen. I know it's not Bhagwan's fault that my heart feels like this, but I just wanted to heal. I don't want to be a bitter person. Give your heart to Bhagwan, and you'll find it's ever healed. That is, um, Bhagwan is always with us. We don't need other people. We don't need the world. If we if we truly have love with him, whatever hurt we may feel, this hurt is something other than ourselves. I do you always feel this condition of hurt. Do you always feel this condition of un, being unloved, uncared for, misunderstood? No, we don't. Sometimes these feelings become stronger. Sometimes they become less strong. They all disappear completely in sleep. So all these are unreal. They are not what you actually are. What we actually are is I am and I am alone. Or I am feeling hurt. I am feeling unloved. I am. These are all adjuncts we're adding to the I am. And the root of all these adjuncts is the false awareness, I am this person. It's this person who is unloved. It's this person who is uncared for. It's this person who is the black sheep of a family. It's this person who's misunderstood. This person is not what we actually are. What we actually are is only that our own being, I am. So we need to hold on to our being. That is the true form of Bhagavan, and that is the true form of ourself. I am is Ramana Swarupa, and it is the Swarupa of ourself, it's the real nature of ourself, and it's the real nature of Bhagavan. So if we truly love Bhagavan, if we truly trust Bhagavan, let's not be concerned about this person and all its uh, feelings. Let us hold on to I am. Feelings come and go. I am alone remains. I hope that's an adequate answer to that question. By following this path, inevitably we will be healed. But healing doesn't always happen overnight. It takes time. So let, let, let's not worry about 
let's leave this concern about healing. Let's leave it to him. Our sole aim should be to hold on to him in our heart as I am. And the last question, can vasanas be said to be memory which continues from life to life in the ego? Example, in my last birth, I may have had the vasana to own a Ferrari. Then after getting the car in that birth, I realized there is no happiness in the Ferrari. So in this life, that vasana is weakened because in some way I have the memory of the dissatisfaction in owning a Ferrari that I experienced in previous births, hence purifying the vasanas. Um, no, we shouldn't confuse vasanas with memories. Memories are very superficial. Memories are impressions left by previous experiences. You, you, you remember having seen a beautiful Ferrari, and you remember the desire you have for that beautiful Ferrari. So the sight of that beautiful Ferrari and the desire you had for it, they leave an impression in your mind. You remember, yes, I did have desire for it. But the vasanas, is not the, the impression left by things. All those, the, that is the vasanas of the seeds, the, 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 the inclination to, um, to experience anything is a, a vasana. So it's the desire, it's the liking, the desire that gives rise to that. So um, the vasanas, the, the vasanas are ego's inclinations. Vasanas have no strength of their own. We that whatever strength vasanas may seem to have is a strength that we give them by allowing ourselves to be swayed by them. So, supposing you have a desire for a Ferrari, um, that that is there must be an inclination there, liking beautiful cars or whatever it is that gave rise to that. Some inclination gave rise to that desire for a Ferrari. If you're always thinking of it, I want a Ferrari, I want a Ferrari, how can I get a Ferrari? I need to earn more money, so I need to work hard, I need to get a better job, um, maybe I need to cheat someone in my business in order to get Ferrari. If you're, if you're constantly thinking how you can get the money to buy the Ferrari, you're, you're allowing your mind to dwell more and more on that thought of having a Ferrari. And the more you dwell on that, the stronger and stronger the desire becomes. So, how to free ourselves from desires, how to free ourselves from the vasanas, but, uh, the, the vasanas of the desires in their seed form. So, how to weaken those vasanas by not feeding the desire, not feeding the vasana. That means not dwelling upon it. Ah, what is a Ferrari? It's just a piece of tin. It may, may look a bit colorful because it's got some yellow paint in it or something, and it's supposed to have a more powerful engine. But after all, what is it? It's just judder material. It's just metal and paint and all these things. Why should I why should I think happiness lies in this Ferrari? We have to use our discrimination. And if we think about these things deeply, there's really no pleasure. All these worldly objects that, that seem to allure us, seem to offer us happiness, if we think about it, we know from experience so many things we've desired in the past, and when we get them, we feel a little bit happy. But how long does that happiness last? It, it's fleeting. You you have desire once when you, I was very, very poor, for to own a hundred pounds seemed to be a great goal. So you struggle and struggle, and finally you have a hundred pounds. 
But then £100 is nothing because the next door person has got £1,000. So you want 1000 So the, the very nature of desire, there's a verse in Guru Kauai in which Bhagavan said, the nature of desire, it will make even a, a, um, a, a, an atom seem as big as Mount Meru before you attain it. So a very, very trifling thing will seem to be a very great achievement. Or oh, if I can get a hundred pounds, then I'll be very happy, we think. Um, so but, because we've got so little money, a hundred pounds seems to us very big. Once we get a hundred pounds, a hundred pounds is nothing. I want a thousand pounds. When we get a thousand pounds, we want a, a ten thousand. Then we want a million. Then we want a billion. There's, there's no satisfying us. So this is the, if we think about our experience honestly, we have to admit to ourselves that we are we are fooling ourselves by thinking that we're going to get happiness from having more money or having a better car or having a bigger house or having a more beautiful husband or wife or having nicer, better behaved children or whatever it is, a better, better promotion in our job to learn more, to be more learned, to study Vedanta, master Vedanta or master this philosophy or that philosophy, to be a great scientist, to be a powerful politician, whatever it is. We, we, we may dream of all these things, but when we get these things, they're nothing. It, it doesn't satisfy us. Nothing can satisfy us because what we are all seeking is infinite happiness because infinite happiness is our real nature. So no finite thing can give us infinite happiness. And as ego, as ego, we're a finite thing. We take ourselves to be this little person. So how can this little person ever experience, how can this finite person experience infinite happiness? If we want to experience infinite happiness, we need to know ourselves as we actually are. And the price to be paid for knowing ourselves as we actually are, we need to sacrifice this ego. Because so long as we, as we are, rises ego we're we're aware of ourselves as i am this person so we're not aware of ourselves as we actually are so we have to sacrifice this ego and since everything else appears only in the view of ego we need to be willing to sacrifice everything but if we surrender everything sacrifice everything the reward we will get will be infinitely greater than all that we seem to have sacrificed all that we seem to have renounced so, but sorry, I went off on a bit of a, a red herring, but the main point is you asked about memory and vasanas. No, memory. Often the chittam, which is the storehouse of vasanas, is translated in English as memory. And many very learned scholars on Vedanta will talk about chittam as memory. But the, what vasanas and memories, what they share in common, they both come from the past. But the memories come from the past in this life. The vasanas come from, as Bhagavan says, Tondru Tottu Varukindra, from time immemorial, these vasanas come. We can't say where, but the vasanas have been with us ever since we rose as ego. It's the very nature of ego to have vasanas. So the vasanas are something far, far deeper than um, memories. Memories belong in the manamaya kosha, that is perception, memories, thinking, feeling, emotion, all these are, 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 are what you call manamaya kosha. Deeper than the manamaya kosha 
if a vijnanamaya koja, the intellect, the power of judgment, the power of discrimination, of distinguishing the, what is real from what is unreal, and distinguishing one thing from another, this is the intellect. That is deeper than the, all this, um, uh, the grosser functions which are belong to manamaya koja. But deeper, more subtle than the intellect, it's the chittam, the, the anandamaya kosha. That consists of vasanas. So the vasanas are the volitional inclinations. It's not just memories. It's the liking that is the, of the vasanas. So the chittam, the correct translation of chittam is will. And it is the chittam that is also called anandamaya kosha. Why is it called anandamaya kosha? Because what is the one thing that we all desire? What is the one thing all desires have in common? One person desires a Ferrari, another person desires to master Vedanta, another person desires to have billions of dollars, another person desires to be president of the United States or prime minister of India or whatever it is. So many different desires people have. But what all these different desires have in common, why do we want to fulfill our desires? Because we think the object of our desire will make us happy. So all desires are desires for happiness. Therefore, the will, the chittam, is called anandamaya kosha. It's all a search. It's, it's happiness is what, you, the, the desire for happiness, the love for happiness, which is our own real nature, is what drives the will. So it is called the anandamaya kosha. So that is something far, far deeper than me memories. Memories are superficial. They come and they go. Uh, thing, something that you could remember 10 years ago, you've forgotten now. We probably most of us have probably forgotten what we ate yesterday or what we even ate this morning. We 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 so many things we forget. So memory and forgetting, it's all very superficial. It's all on the superficial level of the mind. Whereas the vasanas are the very root. I mean, the, the only thing deeper than vasanas is ego. And ego is not one of the five sheaves. Though the 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 the, the mind the intellect, the will, and ego, these are collectively called the antakarana. The difference between ego and the other three is the other three are sheaths. The mind is the manamaya kosha, the intellect is vijnanamaya kosha, the will is anandamaya kosha. Ego is that which takes all five koshas as I. It is that which, the abhimanam, the, the attachment and identification to all the others, that which is aware of itself as I am this body, I am this mind, I, I have memories, I have desires, I, I understand this, I don't understand that. That I but, but identifies itself with all these five sheaths, that is ego. So ego is something much deeper. But the only thing that is, uh, that is, the, the, the in terms of depth, the only thing that comes closer to ego is the vasanas. Because it's a, vasanas are not ego, but it's the nature of ego to have vasanas. So ego always takes vasanas with it. When, when this body dies, all the, the, uh, this body will die, the memories and everything will go. All the, all, all other sheaths will go. But one sheath we take with us is the, and under my kosher, but the will, the vasanas we take with us. And those vasanas are the seeds that give rise to the, all the other four, four, four um, uh, sheaths in the next uh, dream. So it, 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 uh, it's anyone who says that um, the but, 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 but chittam is the 
is memory or who explains vasanas as being memories, they they don't have a they may be very learned, but they don't have a practical understanding. So they fail to distinguish the 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 it's a very clear distinction, the distinction between memories and desire and well the vasanas that give rise to likes and dislikes. They may be associated, of course. If you've got memories of we remember the the tasty dishes that our mother cooked for us when we were a child. So when we remember those, when that may give rise to a desire for that. But the memory is not the desire. The desire is something different. The memory is something different. They're associated. They're not the same thing. So anyone, if any, if you will hear so many learned. Uh, lectures on Vedanta. If you listen to lectures on Vedanta, generally they will translate chittam as memory, and they will explain that. But they, some of them will even explain that vasanas are memories. That is completely wrong. It's a, it's a, it's a lack of a practical. That is the problem. If we try to study all these things without putting them into practice, we won't have the clarity to understand these distinctions. That is why Bhagavan, Bhagavan never asked us to study all the Upanishads and the Brahma Sutra and the Bhagavad Gita and the commentaries on them. Bhagavan summarized the essence of the whole thing, the import of the whole thing. Bhagavan summarized in a few simple texts. And the import of all those texts, the explicit import of all those texts, is we need to put this into practice. Because only from putting it into practice will the real clarity come. Otherwise, we can go on reading these books uh, till cows come home, and for endless lives we can go on reading, but we won't get the real clarity, the real depth of understanding until we put it into practice. And what is the practice? Not reading the books, turning our attention within, reading the book of our own heart. That's what Bhagavan emphasized in the 16th paragraph of Nana. We cannot know ourselves by investigating books, only by investigating within. That if the books are outside the five sheaves, whether what we are seeking to know is within the five sheaves, ourselves. So we need to turn within, leaving aside the five sheaves and know ourselves. That's what Bhagavan says in that 16th paragraph. Uh, Michael, I may have missed something. I just want to clarify. Mm. So uh, the Anandamaya Kosha, that is the will, but it's also the Vasanas, the sort of um, the seeds, the dispositions. The it's not also the Vasanas. The will is nothing but the Vasanas. It's nothing but the Vasanas. So it's the yeah. Vasanas, which is the sort of inclinations, disposition, yeah. habits, yeah. tendencies. Yeah. Not even not even habits. It, 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 it's volitional because you can have a habit I mean, the habits can be habits of behavior, but it's it's the it's the the inclination is I think the best word for it because but the inclination in the sense of a volitional inclination. Okay, so it's a volitional inclination. Yes, yes. That's so in in other words, it's all the likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, fears, and so on in their seed form are called vasanas. In the seed form in which they can be willed. Well, they are the will. The will is yeah. nothing but the vasanas. The will is nothing but the... And why is it called Anandamaya Kosha? Because what is the one thing that we all want? We all want Ananda. So it is it, because it's, Ananda is the only thing, ultimately, whatever we may desire, we desire it because we think it's going to make us happy. 
I see. So it's not the actual feeling of happiness, except temporarily no. uh, when you get something. It's... Yes, 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 exactly, exactly. That is when when any desire is satisfied. Because the desire is satisfied, the happiness that is our own real nature shines forth. So we think, oh, by fulfilling my desire, I was happy. So we associate uh, happiness with the fulfillment of our desires. But actually, it's the other way around. We can be happy only by being free of desires. It's desires are the obstacle to happiness. Because desires take our attention away from ourselves. But vasanas that that's why Bhagavan called them Vishaya Vasanas. But the Vasanas that take our attention away from ourselves to seek happiness in Vishayas, those are Vishaya Vasanas. Um one quick question. Um the ego uh, as grasping, yes. uh, grasping form and all the rest, uh, that is itself will, is it? Or is it another no separate that is but, but, the nature of ego is to grasp. And it's grasping is will, obviously. It's attachment. I mean, why we grasp things? Because we want to, we, uh, why, have, why have I grasped this body as myself? Because I think that so long as I take this body to myself, I can enjoy all these things and all these objects of the world. If, I, if this body dies, then I'm separated from all these objects of my desire, all the objects that I'm attached to. So it, that, that is the clinging is 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 it it is the will but it, it is by the will that we are clinging but ego is not the will ego is that which it is not the wanting it is what wants the desire is a want what is it that wants that is ego okay so it's apart from the five sheets it's apart from the five sheaves, but it cannot stand for a moment. It cannot come into existence without grasping the five sheaves as itself. So they are that's why Bhagavan calls it a formless phantom. The five sheaves are five different types of forms. The, uh, the grossest form is this physical body, and the subtlest form are the vasanas. So it, it's it, these five forms ranging from gross to subtle. But ego is formless. It has no form of its own. It's only by grasping these forms that, as, it, as itself, but it, but, uh, but it becomes aware of other, of, of other forms. So the ego is grasping, and uh, uh, and uh, the Anandamaya Kosha, the will in particular, these two arise simultaneously, uh, and yeah, then yeah, the yeah, other four yeah, sheets yeah. come uh, with yeah, yeah, the will. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That is, but Bhagavan also said, but Vishaya Vasanas, they are not, they, they are primarily, they're the seeds of all the likes, dislikes, desires, and attachments. But they give rise to all the Vishayas. So Bhagavan often said, the seeds of all Vishayas is the Vishaya Vasanas. Now we experience so many Vishayas, so many phenomena. Why do we experience these? Why do these phenomena appear? Because we like to experience them. Because we have a liking to go outwards, we produce, we dream all these phenomena. So the seeds that arise as all phenomena are nothing but a, a, a projection of our own vasanas. That's why sometimes when Bhagavan gave that cinema analogy for explaining how the world appears, he said the film going through the cinema projector, that is the vasanas. And that is what he projected outside of the world. Now, we have uh, four more questions because several have come in, actually. Yes. Do we have time for that or? 
if you're ready, I'm ready to continue as long as you're ready to continue. Yeah. That's not a problem. Um, so the next question is, if physical or emotional discomfort arise due to investigation, does it mean that investigation is not properly practiced? They cannot arise because of investigation or not directly because of investigation. That is, when we are trying to go with, when we're investigating, we're trying to go within. But the, the more we go within, the more the vasanas will impel us to come outwards. So sometimes those vasanas may rise in the form of, um, of uh, physical discomfort or emotional discomfort, all these things. These are all just distractions. These are all ways in which we, we try to find some excuse to, to not to attend to ourselves. Why do we want? Why do we want an excuse not to attend to ourselves? Because attending to ourselves is putting our head on the chopping block. We are we are literally committing suicide. We, this is ego side, but we are committing by attending to ourselves. So as ego, we we try every way we can to avoid attending to ourselves. So these. Um, these physical discomfort, emotional discomfort, these are all seem to be, oh, because my body was in discomfort, I got distracted from self-attentiveness because I was feeling uh, emo emo uh, pain, emotional pain, because I was remembering my past bad experiences or this or that or something. We would prefer to be in pain than attending to ourselves. Though attending to ourselves is far more pleasant than being in pain, we prefer to be in pain, to, to suffer that emotional or physical pain, rather than attending to ourselves, because at least we survive by being in pain. So such is the desperate, um, the desperate uh, desire of ego to survive, but it will, even, it will even subject itself to pain rather than attending to itself. So indirectly, by trying to attend to ourselves, it can produce a reaction in the vasanas to produce pain and so on. But that's not because we're attending to ourselves. That's because we don't want to attend to ourselves. If we hold fast to self-attentiveness, no amount of pain or discomfort in the body or in the emotions or anything is going to disturb us. But we have to have so much love to hold on to ourselves. The problem is, the whole problem is, we don't have sufficient love. That's why Bhagavan said, Bhakti is the mother of jnana. Bhakti is absolutely essential in this path. Because we, we, why would, why should I surrender myself? What benefit do I get by surrendering myself? Only if I have got all-consuming love to know and to be what I actually am, will I be willing to surrender myself? Otherwise, what is there for me, ego? What is there? What what is there for me in this surrender? If I surrender myself, I'm going to die. No, thank you. That is the that is the nature of ego. So ego is always, though it is ego that has to practice this. Ego is as ego, we are reluctant to surrender ourselves. So this is why Bhagavan said this is always a battle within our own will between our satvasana our love just to be as we actually are, and all our, this vast army of Vishayabhasanas, which is constantly trying to pull our attention outwards. So we just have to, we just have to persevere in this practice, whatever pain or whether physical or emotional, or whatever, whatever may come, 
To whom does it come? That's a, Bhagavad, that's a beautiful clue Bhagavan gave us. Whatever may appear, to whom does it appear? It appears to me. So that, that what that means, Bhagavan doesn't mean that we should be questioning ourselves, to whom is this pain? No, he means we should turn our attention away from the pain, back towards ourselves, the one to whom the pain appears. That is the implication of that. So we just have to persevere. However many times our attention comes outwards, we need to bring it back to ourselves. That's all, that's the only way. But we, sh we, we shouldn't blame the self-inquiry for the pain. It's because of our lack of love for self-inquiry that we're, we're experiencing the pain. Lack of sufficient love. The next question is, does verbalization such as grace, awareness, and satchitanand limit the feeling of the eternal infinite being products of memory? Are we to maintain constant communion with silence within without attempting to label it? Labels are all thoughts. Words are thoughts. Uh, words are thoughts. So um, labeling it is not, but we're missing the point. We, 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 it's not use. I mean, sometimes putting a label on it may encourage us. But uh, what exists within us is grace, it, it is silence, it is uh, Satchitananda. Sometimes these labels may encourage us, but we need to go beyond all these labels. We, we, what we actually are is not a word. Though our real nature is described as I am, it doesn't mean it's the words I am. It means what those words I am refer to, our own being. So we need to go beyond all these labels. To go deep into self-investigation, we need to leave behind all labels. That's why Bowen says, without even uttering the word I, with a mind diving within, in Uludunapdu, he says, I think in verse 29, if I remember correctly. So we, we at first, repeating the word I may be a, an aid to help us to fix our attention on ourselves. But in order to go deep, we need to leave behind even the word I. In order to go what that word, into what that word I actually refers to, namely our own being. So if you find these words encourage you, okay, but they they have their limitation. They can only encourage you so far. You have to go beyond that. You have to go deep, deep within, beyond all words and thoughts. The next question is, can mumukshutva, the intense desire for liberation itself, be a final obstruction to liberation? Does the desire for Arunachala eventually have to be relinquished? If so, how is this achieved? It is an obstacle. Real Mumukshutva is not an obstacle. If you, if you take liberation to be something other than yourself, something that you're going to achieve, I've achieved so much in my life. I've amassed a nice fortune by doing business, and I've studied a lot, so I've got a lot of learning. The only thing I'm missing is moksha. I just need to add moksha to all my achievements in this life. If you take it to be an achievement like that, yes, definitely. Because, but moksha is not something other than yourself. It's your own real nature. And to achieve moksha, you need to be ready to give up everything. So what mumukshutva actually means is satvasana or swatma bhakti, the love for our own 
being, our own real nature. So love for our own real nature is absolutely essential and should not be given up. Um, it's only if we take, if we, if we lack understanding and we take a, a liberation to be something that we're going to gain, that's going to be one plus point but i can say oh i'm now i'm now enlightened i'm a self-realized person i've attained liberation if we think that is liberation then definitely that is an obstacle but that is not liberation but death of ego alone is liberation as bhagavan says in the final verse of Uludunaptu. so what is called the, the, the liking for the death of ego is nothing but the love just to be as we actually are. That love to be as we actually are, that alone is true mamukshutva. And that can never be an obstacle. That is the, We cannot attain moksha without that love just to be as we actually are. And that love needs to be so all-consuming that we're willing even to sacrifice ourselves for that. We as ego need to sacrifice ourselves, surrender ourselves completely. So it, it, it's uh, people with this superficial understanding of what is moksha and what is mumukshutva, only they would say mumukshutva is an obstacle. It's a, a misunderstanding of mumukshutva may be an obstacle, but true mumukshutva is the love just to know and to be what we actually are. And that is absolutely essential. And that can that is given to us only by grace. And when it's given to us even to a slightest extent, we then have a responsibility to cultivate that by holding on to self-attentiveness more and more and more. The last question, how to distinguish I am from anything else? Uh, <laughs> how to distinguish gold from the gold ornaments? We need to have a clear understanding that what we call ornaments are nothing but gold. But when we talk about ornaments, what do we talk about? We talk about bangles, rings, necklaces, tiaras, crowns. Um, we, we talk about so many different forms. Gold is not any of those forms. Gold may appear in those forms, but gold is always distinct from the form. But, but this form cannot exist apart from the gold. So um, in practice, we need to turn our attention away from all other things, because everything, all phenomena, whether physical phenomena or mental phenomena or emotional phenomena, all are forms of one kind or another. So the forms are what, what conceal the underlying substance. So we need to see beyond the form to see the underlying substance. In the case of gold, to see the gold distinct from the form is a bit difficult because we have to look at the we have to look at the form in order to see the gold. So but by seeing the gold, we're also seeing the form. But in the case of this Atmavichari, it's different. Because in order to see our own being, in order to see I am, we need to focus our entire attention on, on ourselves, on our own being. The more we go deep in attending to our being, the more our attention is thereby withdrawn from all the forms. So how do we distinguish I am from all forms? Only by holding on to I am more and more and more. And I am doesn't mean just the words I am. What do the words I am denote? Our own being, that fundamental awareness denoted by the words I, that is what we are to hold on to. The more we hold on to that, the more everything else will drop off. Why will everything drop off? Because 
all these adjuncts, all these forms, all these phenomena, are they holding on to us or are we holding on to them? It's we who are holding on to them. So instead of holding, as Bhagavan says, grasping form, ego comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. Leaving form, it grasps form. But instead of grasping form, if it tries to grasp itself, if it tries to investigate who am I, by trying to hold on to itself, it's letting go of other things. So since those other things are not holding us, when we let go of them, they drop off. And eventually, our own pure being, I am alone, will remain. So that is how to distinguish. In other words, the practice of Atmavichara taught by Bhagavan is the way to distinguish. Try to attend more and more to I. Don't be concerned about other things. Other things will appear. The body still seems to exist, even when we're attending to ourselves. If our attention hasn't gone deep enough, doesn't matter. Continue trying to attend to yourself. As you go deeper and deeper in this, in the self-attentiveness, the body will recede into the background and eventually will disappear because your only interest is in knowing and being I am. So that is the only practical way to distinguish it. By holding on to I am and letting everything else drop off. The gold ornament analogy falls down there because if you hold the gold, the form doesn't drop off. But in this case, if you hold I am, all the forms will drop off.